We are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, and it is a sermon about the kingdom of God. And uh, I am wrapping up the fifth chapter and uh, getting us ready for the sixth one. And in this kind of wrap-up sermon, we'll be looking at three different commands that all focus on one core truth, which is the idea of loving your enemies. So a couple of reminders, especially for those of you that are new to church. Uh, I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, We do things a little bit differently during the sermon and encourage questions. So if you have a question about anything I'm I'm teaching or bringing up, just raise your hand if you're here in person, and uh, I will do my best to make sure that I can answer that question. Um, or just tell you we can talk about it afterwards or whatever, but we invite the questions and the interaction. Um, Also, I'm going to put my notes out and make them available on our website, so if you're a note taker, great, but if you feel like there's just like a lot of information flying around, um, you don't have to take detailed notes. They'll be available for you. Um, And then again, after sermon, I'll be available after church for a while. If you just like want to talk about something or process a question that came up, I uh, would love to, love to interact with you, and, and afterwards, too. Uh, it's not uncommon for folks to reach out after sermon and want to talk, and, and I love that. I love learning from you uh, because I don't see myself as really in any greater position to teach what God has in his word than uh, I do to learn from you. So I look forward to those, those times. Um, with that, let's pray, and we'll jump into the heart of the sermon. Jesus, you have shown and told us of a better way to face evil. A third way that's between violence and passivity. A way that refuses to mirror violence back on a violent world. We are so tempted, Father, in so many ways to see our brothers and sisters as the enemy, but help us to recognize that our enemies are not flesh and blood, but the satanic powers that pit creation against itself. You conquered the sword, with the cross, a cross that to many seems foolish, but as Paul says, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We know that one day you have said all swords will be turned to plowshares. We lack faith that that will be true, Lord, but please make your strength perfect in our weakness. And Father, for me, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Amen. All right, let's jump in. Um, and I forgot to say, too, if you have questions at home, try to drop them in the chat, and uh, I will do my best to answer them. I see you, Vershawn. Thanks for the good morning. Okay, so uh, this is a phrase I'm sure most of us are familiar with, especially the parents in the room. Violence doesn't solve anything, right? So imagine two little kids, maybe two little boys, not to be weirdly specific, who are having an argument, and that argument escalates into physical violence. That happens all the time with kids because kids have urges and they have actions and there's very little gap in between, right? Over time, as we get older, we learn how to increase that gap and our job as parents is to help kids learn how to do that. Um, At the same time, the gap is closed and so we have to tell our kids and remind them, you know, violence isn't going to solve this situation, buddy. Um, I guess my question, though, for us and for the adults in the room as well as the kids is, do we really believe that? Do we really believe that violence doesn't solve anything? I think if we're honest, especially when we talk about retaliation or vengeance, uh, we like it. We enjoy it. It's entertaining, and it feels good and satisfying. Um, Think about, you know, the movie Taken with Liam Neeson, uh, where he's on the phone with his daughter's kidnappers, and he's threatening them with a certain set of skills that he's going to 
you know, throw at them later in the movie, or, or Russell Crowe in the movie Gladiator, uh, where he ultimately, you know, avenges the death of his family at the hands of a corrupt Roman emperor in gladiatorial combat. I mean, that movie got Academy Award nominations, and it's basically just people chopping each other to pieces. Um, or maybe a more lighthearted movie, Inigo Montoya from uh, The Princess Bride, who uh, is going around the movie waving his sword around, and you're saying, this isn't a sword, J.D., this is a, a vacuum extension. It, it'll make sense later, I promise. Pay attention, it'll make sense later. But you got Montoya out there saying, you know, my father was killed, and, and finally he finds the guy who killed his father, and he has this classic stance, and he says, my name is Inigo Montoya, you killed my father, prepare to die. And we love it, right? Like, we're clapping. We love it. You know, and even the most recent movie, The Batman, I just watched that last night. It's, it's great. Uh, Batman introduces himself by pummeling a criminal to a pulp and standing over his body and answering the question of, who are you? He says, I'm vengeance, right? That's how he introduces himself, and we love it. We love the way that vengeance is portrayed in media um, and, and let's be clear, this isn't like Saving Private Ryan, where that movie is violent, but it is a warning against war and violence. It's showing you how terrible it is. That's not what these movies are. For every Saving Private Ryan, there are 10, uh, you know, vengeful movies. And I think we have to ask ourselves, like, why is that the case? Why do we enjoy violent vengeance so much? And why is there so much media out there that, that talks about this? And I, I would say it's because art imitates life, and life imitates art. And our culture as a human society, as an American society, and even as a church, is very violent, whether we realize it or not. For sure, humanity's violence goes way, way, way back to Cain and Abel. Uh, when Cain strikes down his brother, you know, these are Adam and Eve's first kids, murder happens quite early on the scene. Um, but this is not just a human problem. We have to be honest and acknowledge that this is an American problem too. And we're Americans, so we need to wrestle with that. Um, and I could point to you know, all kinds of different data points, crime data, what have you. But what I want to give as an illustration of this is a poll from 2016 um, at the height of debates about the Muslim ban, um, the idea of sort of banning people who had the Muslim faith from entering into the, the nation. Um, and in this poll, a little over 1,000 self-identified Republicans and Democrats were asked, would you feel comfortable bombing Agrabah? And about 30% of Republicans said yes, a little over 50% said maybe, not sure. And about 20% of Democrats said yes, and about 50% said maybe. So in both cases, a pretty significant number of people were not opposed to that decision. Um, you know, especially if you have kids, uh, you probably realize that Agrabah is not a real place. It's a fictional kingdom from the Disney movie. And yet people were sitting here saying, yeah, yeah, I, I'd be comfortable with bombing Agrabah. They didn't know it was the kingdom from Disney. They thought it was an Arabic city somewhere in Iraq or Saudi Arabia. The fact that there was a, a city that had an Arabic-sounding name was enough for a significant number of people to say, yep, I'd be okay with bombing that. That's a bomb-worthy target. Okay, so as a community and as a nation, I think we have to acknowledge the fact that we are eager to fight and eager to war. But it also isn't just an American issue. It's in the church. And I'll just give two quick examples of this. One is from a book called Wild at Heart, which is written by a man named John Eldridge. Uh, this is maybe one of the most wildly successful Christian uh, nonfiction books published in the 21st century. It sold 4 million copies its first year. 
and it's a book about Christian masculinity and what it means to be a Christian man. Um, and so I think we have to take note of the fact that it was so successful, especially when in one of his chapters, Eldridge is sitting down with his son, a first grader at the time, um, and he's talking to him because his son has been bullied. His son was in a playground incident. He got pushed over by another kid. He told the teacher, but he was feeling discouraged about the whole thing. And Eldridge talks about sitting his son down, staring him straight in the eyes and saying, son, you see that kid again? I want you to punch him right in the nose. And Eldridge says, if I hadn't done that, he would have grown up never knowing how to stand his ground, never knowing if he was a man. Yeah, he would look courteous, sweet, deferential, minding his manners. He might even look moral. It might look like turning the other cheek, referencing Jesus' command we're going to talk about soon. But it is merely weakness. You cannot turn a cheek that you do not have, and our churches are full of such men. Dismissive. Again, incredibly popular book. And a man teaching his son, no, the way to solve your problem is to punch that kid right back in the nose. This is what it means to be a Christian man. And then you have Jerry Falwell Jr., the former president of Liberty University, the largest Christian university that's ever existed, probably the largest Christian organization that's ever existed in terms of total employees, money, land. It's huge. And I remember years ago, um, Falwell addressing chapel, which is where thousands of students would come and listen to messages about the Bible. And he said, I've always thought it, if more good people had concealed carry permits, we could end those Muslims before they even walked in. Let's teach them a lesson if they ever show up here. And he reached for his waist when he said that. What a contradiction of Jesus' words and teachings. So I think, family, I say all this to say, we, whether we realize it or not, are saturated by a comfort with violence. We believe, not that uh, violence doesn't solve anything, but the best way to stop a bad guy with a gun is, or a sword or a lightsaber or a superpower is a good guy with a gun or sword or lightsaber or superpower. And I think we can begin over time to forget that whenever violence is used, it begets more violence. Always. If you're standing in a peaceful lake and you throw a rock into it, you get a lot of ripples, and those ripples go on and on forever. Uh, they almost never stop. You will not stop those ripples by throwing in more rocks. You will only cause more ripples. You will not bring peace to that lake through more rocks, just like you will not bring peace to society through more violence. And so I would say this isn't a question of whether Jesus has something to say about this. The question is whether or not we're going to listen to what he has to say. So, Let's jump into the passage today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. Uh, so you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. The verses are going to be up on the screen. And as you do that, I just want to remind us of the context that we're stepping into here. So at the beginning of this sermon, Jesus talked about eight Beatitudes. He talked about people who are blessed by God, and it was surprising to see who those people were. They're the poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart the peacemakers, the persecuted. Not the power grabbers, not the influencers, not the impactors, not the people who have obtained lots of prestige and control. It's the people who are poor in spirit, the people who go out of their way to make peace. 
They're the ones who are called children of God. They're the ones who inherit the kingdom. Jesus also gives six antitheses or statements where he says, you've heard it said, but then I tell you to describe the way this community would behave. And in these antitheses, we learned that reconciliation is what overcomes anger. Discipline is what overcomes lust and the objectification of people. Language is simple and honest. And today, we're going to learn how retaliation is renounced and hatred is replaced by enemy love. So these things inform what we're going to read today, and they ultimately define the subject of the sermon, which is the kingdom of God. By embodying the character revealed in these eight Beatitudes and the six antitheses, Jesus' followers were going to be salt and light in the world, a model community that would show and tell the way that God's love would act through counterintuitive and generous and peaceful enemy-loving habits and practices. This community is what Jesus referred to as the kingdom of God, you and me living together in a way that manifests the rule and reign of Jesus by dying to ourselves and lifting up the needs and well-being of others. Through our words and deeds, we go about proclaiming a new way, one that breaks into the world's brokenness, shames the forces of evil, and shines a light that the darkness and shadows can never overcome. In this kingdom, we're all a family, a society where rich and poor, young and old, weak and strong, men and women, tax collectors and zealots, Republicans and Democrats, all share the same table of fellowship, aching and groaning our way towards a unity that Jesus prayed for 2,000 years ago. And as citizens of this kingdom, we get the privilege of inviting our friends and family and neighbors into eternal life, which the Bible talks about as community with God himself, the same one that describes himself as a parent rushing down the road to embrace his prodigal son, as a shepherd leaving his flock to find the one lost sheep, as a suffering servant who identifies with the least of these, and as the Messiah who washes the feet of his betrayers and pleads the forgiveness for his murderers. By participating in this eternal life, we're transformed into living sacrifices who hate injustice, love one another, mourn with those who mourn, associate with the lowly, show respect to everyone, and overcome evil with good. We become like the man in Jesus' parable in Matthew 13, who discovers treasure buried in a field, sells everything that he has to buy that field, except we get to finish that parable by turning around and giving it away to everyone else. That's the kingdom that Jesus is preaching about here. That's the good news that starts with Jesus' disciples in Matthew 5, but ends with crowds by the end of Matthew 7. It's good news. It's a new community that lives in a different way. And in this chapter 5, Jesus gives three commands about this community that we're going to focus on. To not resist, to love your enemies, and to be perfect. So let's talk about the first of those three commands today. Do not resist. Uh, And this comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. I'm going to go ahead and read that one for us. This is Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. So this is, again, Jesus' structure of the antithesis, right? Where he says, you've heard it said, but I tell you. And you've heard it said in this case is the teaching of an eye for an eye, or what scholars call the lex talionis, the law of retaliation. 
This comes from the Old Testament. It's mentioned in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And at its best, this law was intended to reduce vengeance and have proportional responses in court to bad behavior. So in other words, you didn't want someone who was injured slightly to turn around and kill the person who injured them. You wanted to control and suppress the cycle of violence to the extent possible, and you did it in court. However, that passage was being used by Jews at the time to justify vengeful behavior. Oh, you, you wounded me? I'm going to wound you back the same way. I'm commanded to do so in the law. Oh, you wounded me to this degree? I'm going to do the same back to you. And so you were seeing a rule that was really being misunderstood and misapplied. Now, the key here is the Greek term that's being used for the word resist, where Jesus says, do not resist someone. It's translated in this passage as resist, but I think the actual meaning is quite a bit more violent and even militaristic. And it actually should be translated to mean, don't violently resist evil. And I know this because in the Old Testament, uh, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, this word antistenai comes up over 70 times. And well over half the times that Greek word shows up, it's used to reference military conflict. Um, also in the New Testament, Paul uses this word, antisenai, to refer to how we need to stand against the devil and his schemes. And James does the same thing in James 4, how we need to submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So this isn't just all forms of resistance. Um, and it, there's even some extra biblical evidence of this too. The historian Josephus uses this term, antistenai, 17 times. And 15 of those times, it's about military battles. So again, this isn't a teaching against all forms of resistance, but Jesus is specifically teaching against resisting in a violent way evildoers. Um, N.T. Wright, who's a famous biblical scholar, literally translates Matthew 5.39 as don't use violence to resist evil, not merely don't resist. And I think that's really important here because it frames the rest of the examples that Jesus uses. Right? So when he says, turn the other cheek, or give the other garment, or walk the extra mile, those are all ways of non-violently resisting the person who is mistreating you. And we're going to talk about that. Um, and also, I think this is true, because if Jesus were just teaching total submission, and just accepting your lot as if God had given it to you, that wouldn't be good news to the people who are listening. These are the people who are suffering under harsh, con harsh conditions and oppression, and simply telling them to suck it up and deal with it isn't good news. Um, and Howard Thurman, an African-American scholar who speaks on this very issue in his book, Jesus the Disinherited, talks about how wherever Jesus' spirit appeared, the oppressed gathered courage, because whenever Jesus announced the good news that fear and hypocrisy and hatred need have no more dominion over them, that was good news. And that's what Jesus is offering here, is good news for people who are suffering in these situations. And again, he's not just speaking to people who are suffering. He is himself part of the disinherited. He is a refugee. He is colonized. He is oppressed by the Roman imperial powers. He's not speaking to people. He is among them. And he's using that credibility to urge his listeners towards what I would describe as a third way, a way between passivity and violence that actually reflects the kingdom of God. So let's get into the examples. Let's talk about them. So turn the other cheek. That's Matthew 5, 38 to 39. Again, Jesus says, Do not resist an evildoer. Do not violently resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. So, why does he say the right cheek? Let's start there. Um, as many, many people have noticed well before me, this is a critical comment 
Because in order for someone to hit you in the right cheek, they would have to do so in a backhanded fashion. One, you can't use your left hand in first century Palestinian culture because that's reserved for unsanitary things, and you don't use that in any public action. It's just totally unacceptable. So now you're left with your right hand, and it's really, really difficult to hit somebody in the right cheek with the fist in the angle of, you know, sort of the movement. So instead, when Jesus is talking about being struck on the right cheek, he's talking about people slapping you. That kind of hit is not the hit between equals. It's a hit that is used to get somebody who's out of line back in line. It was common for Romans to do this to Jews, for husbands to do this to wives, for parents to do this to children. Um, This was a way of getting people um, who are lower on the social food chain than you back into line. Now again, notice that Jesus is presuming who his audience is here. He's not saying, when you hit people, strike them on the left cheek in a dignifying way. He's saying, no, when you are hit by people on the right cheek, so he is speaking to people who encounter this regularly and are themselves on the lower end of the social food chain. And he says, turn your other cheek as well. Now, why would Jesus do that? Why would he tell people who are getting hit to get hit a second time? Um, And to explain this, I think it's better to see it than to hear it. So I'm going to need a volunteer, preferably somebody who would enjoy hitting me. Hey, I see it. Yeah, come on, come on. Oh, no, join. Go ahead, join. Come on up. You guys both can. It's fine. I don't know why Joanne got so excited to hit me. We've been in a small group together for years. I didn't know. The truth comes out. Come on up. Come on up to the stage. Yeah, all the way up. All right. Okay, so Elliot, I want you to, with your right hand, that one, yep. I want you, don't actually hit me, okay? Because I'm, I'm scared of you. Try to hit me on this cheek, on the right cheek, with your right hand. Right. It's kind of hard to, right? It's like, you've got to kind of like do like an angle thing. If you were going to hit me with your right hand, how would you do it? Well, how would, if you were really trying to like knock me out, like how would you, how would you try to hit me? Boom like that, on my left cheek, right? Okay, so Joanne, imagine that you just hit me on this cheek. You backslapped me, all right, boom, okay. So I'm, I'm in shock because Joanne, you know, she's strong. She beat me up, but I'm not, yeah, he's like, will you hit him? Please don't. I told Laura about this example, and she's like, are they going to really hit you? Like, I don't know. Um, so, but instead of me just kind of getting back in line, I stand up, and I actually turn my cheek, Hit me in the right cheek. Try to. It's pretty hard, right? My nose is in the way. I got a big nose. You know, left cheek. You can't really get there. Why does that matter? Because in first century Palestine, if you square up and you hit somebody, you're saying that's my equal socially. I'm treating you like you are a threat to me. Once you've done that to me, you have basically conceded the fact that I'm not getting in line anymore. You know, you're not over me. You're not forcing me to submit you're treating me like an equal. And in this way, Jesus isn't permitting his followers to get back and fight. That's what the zealots were teaching. And he's not saying to just go away. He's saying, stand up for yourself, show them your dignity, but don't use violence back at them. Don't become what you hate. And in doing that, you mess up the whole process. You mess up the whole system. Thank you guys so much. So this is, again, this is good news for the people that are listening. Um, but let's turn to the second example now. So that's turning the other cheek. 
Um, let's talk about giving the other garment. This is in Matthew 5, now verse 40. Jesus says, And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. What's he talking about here? Well, first of all, this is a situation that only affects the poorest of the poor. A situation where you're losing literally the shirt off of your back because of a debt. Um, Deuteronomy 24 did allow for this, but the rule back then was, you know, if you can't take anything from someone you lent money to except their coat, you actually have to give it back to them at night. Um, That way they have something to sleep in. So there was like an element of kind of a small amount of justice in that, kind of looking out for the little guy, not really, but something there. Um, At this point, though, Jews were circumventing that rule by saying, eh, we're not going to ask for your outer coat because we have to give that back. We're going to ask for your inner garment, the part that you wear under your coat, which is usually more valuable because it's made of a nicer material, and we don't have to give it back to you at night. So we get to keep it, sell it, do whatever we want with it. So Jesus is addressing this, and he's addressing debt, not just here, but it happens quite a bit in his parables, if you notice. There's a lot of situations where debt comes up, and that's because debt was a big part of society back then. Either due to heavy taxes or interest rates, it was very common for Jews to lose their land and then end up working the land that they used to own on behalf of a richer, wealthier person. Debt was something that crippled Jews back then, and it's why when the revolutions took place um, and zealots got involved, Uh, in 64 AD, one of the first things that they did was burn down the temple treasury because that's where all the record of debts were kept. It was a way of freeing people from this burden of debt. This wasn't something, again, that was happening because people weren't budgeting well or, you know, pinching their pennies together. This was a system that was designed to remove people from property ownership um, very, very deliberately. So we get back to the situation now where people are in court. They're being told to give their inner garment uh, why is Jesus then going and saying, give them your outer garment as well? I mean, that doesn't leave a whole lot of clothes left over. Um, what are we supposed to make of this? Why would Jesus tell oppressed people who have nothing left to give the very last thing that they own? Um, and so again, I'm going to need a couple of volunteers, maybe one volunteer for this one, um, to help me illustrate this, because I think it's easier to see um, than it is to tell. Anybody? Yeah, Allie, come on up. Adelaide's like, I want to sue you for stuff. Come on, let's go. All right, hand for Adelaide. Thank you. I feel like a magician. It's like, all right, let me get a volunteer from the audience. Okay, so I want you guys to imagine that you guys are the court administrators. I'm the debtor. I'm the person who hasn't been paying up, and Adelaide is the creditor, okay? So I come in, and I tell you, look, I know I owe you a debt. Uh, I know you gave me that loan, but look, I've got a baby on the way. I've got two crazy kids. I work 14 hours a day on the farm, and like, I just cannot keep up. Is there any way you could give me a break? And you're probably going to say what? Give me your coat. coat. She said, give me your coat. Not like, oh, I'm sorry. I feel bad for you. She's like, give me your coat. So I will, right? I'll probably give her my coat. And now it would be your inner garment in the normal situation. But what Jesus is saying here is after you give them your coat— He's not saying just back out and leave. He's saying, you know what? From a modern standpoint, why don't you take this too? Because I don't need time. Like, what am I going to do with it? You know? And while you're at it, what am I even going to do use shoes for? There's no point in working. Why don't you take that shoe? You know, and I really don't need this belt. So why don't you go ahead and take this belt too? Um, yeah, uh, the ring, definitely. What's the point? I'm humiliated at this. So what is, what's Adelaide in this position now, right? Like, she feels awkward. She feels humiliated. And she's holding all this stuff 
Um, and, and in Jewish culture, I would actually be naked in this situation. Thankfully, it's not the case here. Um, but it's shameful to the person who causes nakedness to happen, not the person who is themselves naked. And so the debtor, the creditor in this situation is the one doing the wrong now. They're the person being humiliated, not the person who's not paying the debt. I have flipped the script and made Adelaide the person who's really feeling the shame in this situation, not me, even though the whole situation is designed to make me feel shame. Thank you, Adelaide. Appreciate it. You didn't know you are going to have to hold a shoe. <laughs> Again, why does this matter? Why is this good news? It's good news because Jesus is not telling these Jewish people to rise up with violence and to attack them. He's telling them that you do need to stand up for yourself, but in a way that is nonviolent, in a way that communicates the values of God's kingdom and also stands up for your dignity. And so that's the second illustration that he gives. Let's go to the third one now, walking the second mile. This is uh, from Matthew chapter 5, verse 41, where Jesus commands his listeners um, to walk the second mile when they're asked to carry one or go one mile. Now, what is this referring to? Um, you may be familiar with this one a little bit more, but this is coming from a Roman imperial context, not just Jews on Jews treating each other poorly. Um, even the word mile that's used in scripture is itself a Roman term. And so that's one clue that we know that Jesus is talking about Romans. The other is that there was a concept called anjaria, um, which was the idea that you could force subjects of the Roman Empire to carry things for soldiers. Um, and we see an example of this in the Gospel of Luke and in other Gospels as well, where Simon the Cyrene is forced to carry Jesus' cross. That is an example of anjaria in action, um, a situation where Romans forced a peasant to do this for them. Now, Jesus' focus here, again, he's not speaking to people like soldiers saying, when you force people into service. No, he's saying, when you are forced into this. He knows his audience. And again, zealots would say, fight, use violence, get back at these people, don't let them make you carry their stuff. Because a lot of times it was Roman soldiers' heavy equipment, packs, food, that peasants were being forced to carry a mile. They'd have to leave their jobs, leave their families, hike a while, and then hike all the way back. But Jesus isn't saying fight back. He's not saying ignore them. He's saying walk an extra mile. <laughs> How is that good news for the people who are listening? Um, now, I'm not going to make anybody help me with this illustration because we don't have a mile to walk. Um, but I do want you to try and imagine the situation, right? Imagine a situation where a Roman soldier approaches a follower of Jesus, tosses their equipment down at their feet, and says, let's go. And there's no resistance. There's no argument. You know, maybe the Roman soldier even has his hand on his sword in case the Jew gets a little feisty. But the Jew just picks it back right up and starts walking with him. Maybe even starts talking to him about Jesus and drives the Roman a little crazy. Um, and as they walk and as they walk, they reach one mile. Why does that matter? Well, in the Anjaria rule, one mile was the limit that you were allowed to make a peasant carry your equipment. And if you went more than a mile, you could be subject to discipline as a soldier from a Roman centurion. So, once that Jew continues to walk a step and another step and another step beyond that mile, what's going on in the Roman soldier's mind? That centurion, see what just happened? Hey, give me my pack back. No, no, I, I got this. I got you. I'm, I'm happy to. No, you don't understand. You've got to give it back. Sir, it's fine. I'm happy to do this. I love you, and I'm here to serve you. Carry, carry. No, give, give me the pack back, right? So now you've got a Roman soldier who is doing something to intimidate, 
to benefit himself, to take advantage of somebody who is weak. And that person in their position of weakness has flipped the script and put the Roman soldier in a vulnerable position where maybe they get punished. They have to pay a fee. They don't get to eat food for the day. They have to stand up in one position the entire day. Those were common punishments back then from centurions to soldiers. Again, Jesus isn't saying just accept your lot or violently fight back. He's teaching a third way, a different way to nonviolently resist oppressive and evil behavior. All three of these illustrations for this first command to not resist show us that there's a different way for Christians to respond to our enemies. We don't imitate evil and we don't mirror it back to the evildoers. Then we become the very thing that we oppose. Jesus is teaching us something important here, something that gets reinforced in the New Testament. Our enemies are not flesh and blood. That is a trick. That is a deception. Satan wants us to believe that you and I are enemies of each other, that we are the opponents, and that's not true. The Bible talks about powers and principalities that work behind the scenes, that orchestrate evil and judgment in this world, and they are the enemies. You can't fight those enemies with swords. The only sword that works with that kind of enemy is this one. That's the sword that we need, and that's what Jesus is teaching here. Yeah, Jamie, sorry, I, I see your question. Woo. Sorry, uh, I forgot to mention at the beginning you're not allowed to ask that question. No, I'm kidding. I'm just buying time so I can tie my shoe. This is a really good question. Um, we are going to talk about war a little bit later. So if I don't answer your question at that point, I'll come back to you and you tell me. But I, I think it's going to be addressed as we go on. But it's a really good question. Yes, thank you. Jamie's question was, what about Christians in the Ukraine? What are they supposed to do in these situations? How, how should they be responding in terms of loving their enemies and not resisting evil? It's a really good question. And my answer was, we'll come back to it because <laughs> it's going to come up later in the sermon. So let's shift from that first command then to not resist to the second command, which is to love our enemies. So Jesus is teaching here and building on the first command that kingdom citizens don't just reject retaliation, they actually take it another step forward and they love their enemies. Again, this comes from the same passage, Matthew 5, 33 to 48. Or excuse me, 43 to 48. And Jesus says, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same thing? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Don't even Gentiles do the same? So just like the last command, I want to dig into the Greek a little bit because I think it really helps us understand this passage. The word love here that's being translated is the word agapate, which is a derivative of the Greek word agape, probably a word that you guys have heard before. In Greek language, there are four different words that are actually used for love. There's storge, which is familial love, eros, which is romantic love, phileo, which is love between friends, and then agape, which in Greek culture and Greek language meant kind of like a general empathy or charity or loving kindness towards all people. Um, Christians, though, took that word and really ran with it and made it become kind of the centerpiece of who God is and what his character looks like in our world. 
So in 1 John 4, the Apostle John, who's described in the Bible as the one loved by Jesus, says that God is love and that his love is undeserved and gracious and sacrificial in nature. When Jesus is asked by the Pharisees in Matthew 22, what are the greatest commands or what is the greatest command? Jesus responds with, you shall agape God with all your heart and you shall agape your neighbor as yourself. The whole of the law and prophets hang on these two commands. So he, he summed up our faith as loving God and loving your neighbor. And then Paul famously expanded on what this love looks like in practical ways in 1 Corinthians 13, which should be up on the screen, but I will turn to here as well. This is a famous passage. It's not just for weddings. This applies to all of us as Christians and as we're learning here with respect to our enemies. 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That's agape. And what Jesus is saying in this passage, when he says to love your enemies, he's saying to agape your enemies, to do the things that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians, to be like God who is himself agape love. Now, let's be clear about this because this is not a small thing. Jesus is not commanding that you should like your enemies. It is possible to love someone that you do not like very much. And I think we could probably all think of a couple of examples, so I'm not going to get into that right now. Okay? Martin Luther King talks about this in his, one of his most famous sermons called Strength to Love. He talks about how the command to love his enemies was kind of the, the foundation of his faith. But even in that sermon, he acknowledges, there's quite a few people I do not like. You know, there are people who make my life miserable, but I love them. I love them with an agape love. So this is not a command that you just need to like and get along with everybody. Sometimes there's going to be people in your life that you see as enemies that you're not going to want to spend a whole lot of time with, but that does not give you the permission to abandon the command to love your enemies in the way that is talked about in Scripture. What Jesus is commanding is that we love unconditionally, indiscriminately, and unselfishly. Unconditionally, because Jesus doesn't put any qualifications in this passage. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. It's not love your enemies except when they're mean to you. Nope. It's not love your enemies except when they attack you in your house. Nope. And you might say, well, but, well, what about, there, there's, no, there's no conditions here. There's no exceptions. You love your enemies, period, end of discussion. It's not that complicated. It's also indiscriminate. Look at how Jesus describes the love of God. The sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous. The rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. God loves just like the rain nourishes and the sun shines. He loves everyone indiscriminately, no matter whether good or evil. God's love is, ex is extended to everyone. And that same should be true for us. And it's also unselfish. Even when we expect to get nothing back but hatred, we love, we give, we sacrifice, expecting nothing in return. So here's my concern, family. I think when we abandon this and we fail to agape our enemies, we make two major mistakes. One, we offer nothing distinctive back to the world. We forget that we're supposed to be salt and light. The world already behaves in a way 
uh, where they love the people that love them and hate and attack and kill the people that don't. And if we're just behaving the same way, how are we salt and light? What are we bringing to the conversation that is distinct? But more than that, family, if we begin to adopt those patterns, we just perpetuate the same violent habits that destroy God's creation in the first place. We're just part of the problem. We're just turning the wheel. We're perpetuating a cycle of violence when we don't step out and love our enemies. Martin Luther King talks about this in the same sermon. He says, Returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Yes, this is counterintuitive. Yes, this seems to run against our common sense. But Jesus' response to that hesitation is the kingdom of God, which is itself counterintuitive, which is itself lacking in some common sense. That isn't how we behave. The gospel isn't that intuitive. It's actually teaching us the opposite of the way that we behave as humans. Our instinct is to return violence with violence. Jesus says no. That's not the way. Our instinct is to love our neighbors but not our enemies. Jesus says no. Love your enemies. We cannot be so caught up in what we see as something is intuitive or common sense that we miss the plain teaching of Jesus, which is to love your enemies. So that leads us to the third command, the briefest one. Two words in Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect. Whew, okay. So first you're telling me that I can't retaliate with violence. Now you're telling me that I have to love my enemies. And then you ended up by telling me I need to be perfect? I'm already feeling terrible. I'm not good at not retaliation. I definitely don't love my enemies, and I'm certainly not perfect. Okay? How is this good news? Again, I want to go to the Greek here and look at the word that's translated as perfect. Yes, it can be translated as perfect, and it is translated as perfect quite a bit, but I think that's a little misleading because when we read perfect, we're thinking of something like holiness or sinlessness, and that is not what is being communicated here. And that is crystal clear because in the book of Matthew, a very different Greek word is used called hagios. The Greek word that's used here is teleos. Hagios is about holiness and sinlessness, and that's not the word used here. The word used here really is getting after maturity or completion, lacking in nothing, being complete, not being sinless or holy in that sense. So translations that treat this as, you know, be holy because the Father is holy is really missing the point because that's not the Greek word being used here. Now, it doesn't help a ton because Jesus is still saying to be complete, but what does he mean? I think he means what he's been saying for all of Matthew chapter 5, that to be a complete person, to be truly human, means to look like the Beatitudes, to be people who are poor in spirit, meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, making peace with others. That's what it means to be truly human, to be complete. It also means living like the antithesis that Jesus taught, overcoming anger through reconciliation, disciplining yourself against lust, uh, not settling for dishonesty, but speaking simply, and never avenging yourself, but responding with enemy love. That's what it means to be complete. That's what it means at the end of this chapter. It's the summation of everything that Jesus has been teaching to this point. Because if we do this, if we live in those ways, we live as true humans, we reveal God in our daily lives, we break free from the clutches of sin, and we embrace the habits of the kingdom that, as I said before, are counterintuitive, but can change the world. That's what Jesus is getting at when he says, be perfect.
So, three commands. Do not resist violently. Love, agape love your enemies, and be complete. Given all of that, I would think that Christians would be known for being meek and honest, disciplined, creative, nonviolent people who love their enemies left and right. But I think we all agree that's not really the case. And part of that is because this is one of the most difficult commandments to really implement in our daily lives. It just runs up against everything we know and think and what we're taught, in part by the violent culture we talked about earlier. So I want to get into three questions that are commonly asked, some of which many of you have probably already been thinking about. Um, The first question is, well, what do we do about self-defense and defending others? What's the Christian view on that? And that's a fair question to ask given this. It would seem like there's not really a lot of room for Christians to engage in kinds of self-defense. I would say that there are two big views that I want to just briefly introduce um, that have kind of been the major views in Christian history throughout church history. One view that I'm referring to as Christian self-defense and one view that I'm referring to as Christian nonviolence. Just war being the first one, pacifism being the second one. Um, I should say, too, I have some skin in this game. I mean, I grew up in a military family. My father's an officer in the military. I lived on military bases my whole life. So this is very personal for me. Um, And also, uh, you know, I've held both of these views at different times, and I've written about them and argued for both. So I've I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. Um, So what I want to do is kind of present each view as if it's my own, so that you have a a, a fair sense of what the arguments are. So from the Christian self-defense perspective, Historically speaking, this has been the predominant view since the 4th century. So almost 2,000 years, most Christians have believed in this view. And it came from St. Augustine of Hippo, an African theologian, who argued that there are times where Christians can use violence and even sometimes should use violence in order to defend others and engage in what he called just war, which is a way of saying there are some wars that you can fight that are just, and then once you get into the war or battle, you have to fight it in a just way. You shouldn't be killing civilians. You've got to do it the right way. Um, and in many cases, there are lots of Christians who identified as nonviolent folks who kind of come over to this side when the going gets tough and the rubber meets the road. Because at the end of the day, it just feels too hard to really be principled on this. And a good example of that is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was very, very outspoken as a nonviolent advocate, but then came to participate in the assassination of Hitler because he believed that he had to to stop the evil that was Hitler. There are plenty of passages to pull from in the Old Testament and New Testament as well for this view. For example, the Bible distinguishes murder and killing, right? Murder is a command, thou shalt not murder, but killing is not referred to in the same way. There are plenty of times where killing is allowed in certain situations. The law provides for it, such as in capital punishment. God commands people to do it. And honestly, God himself kills people all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so this view would argue, how can it be the case that it's objectively wrong to kill when we see all this evidence in the Old Testament especially? And then in the New Testament, there are passages as well. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Luke 22, Jesus tells his disciples to sell their cloaks and go buy some swords. In Mark 11, um, Jesus puts a whip together, goes into the temple, and cleanses it. Sounds pretty violent to me. Um, And then again, there are quite a few situations where centurions and Roman soldiers are confronted with Jesus, his disciples, John the Baptist, and there is not a single example of those soldiers being rebuked for being soldiers, right? If they're in a vocation that is inherently wrong because it's violent, you would think 
that Jesus and his disciples would have something to say about that. I mean, he pulled Zacchaeus off to the side and told him what he was doing was wrong. Why didn't he do that with the Romans? It's a fairly compelling argument. In some cases, too, in Matthew 8 and Acts 10, centurions are praised for their faith. Like, how can you praise somebody for their faith if their vocation is inherently evil? That would be one of the arguments. And then finally, a common argument here is that in Revelation, Jesus is not a slain lamb anymore. He is a roaring lion. He shows back up on the scene with a sword coming out of his mouth, a cloak dripping in blood, conquering and judging the world. That does not sound like a God who is against violence as a category. And this view would say that the other view tends to separate God's love and God's justice. Both of those things are true about God. You can't just say God is love and also say he's not just. They both have to be true at the same time. Um, And also this view would say theologically that God identifies with the poor and marginalized. And so for Christians not to defend people in vulnerable positions is a failure to behave like God in this world. So that is the self-defense view, um, but that is not the only view. There's a second view, um, which is the Christian nonviolence view. Let's start again going back to the historical perspective. This view, the nonviolence view, was the universal view of the early church for the first 330-ish years. 28 writings, 10 different authors all spoke on this topic. Not one of them said violence is acceptable in any situation. The, the one uh, professor of mine would say, the John 3.16 of the early church was Matthew 5, love your enemies. It was the verse quoted more often than any other situation, and it's because the Christians were getting marched off and killed and constantly having to wrestle with, well, what are we supposed to do about this? Can't we respond violently? And the consistent answer was no. That changed with Augustine, but it changed because Augustine and the church was invited to have a seat at the table of government for the first time. The faith was legalized by Constantine, and Christians had an opportunity to govern. And Augustine admits in his writings that it was impractical to try to have a nonviolent view uh, in government. It just didn't work, and so we had to abandon it. And this view would argue that that decision and the legalizing of the faith has ruined the church's testimony because it has led to the justification of the Crusades, the Inquisitions, and lots of other religious wars that have ruined the church's witness at so many different points in history. As far as the Old Testament, this view would argue um, that yes, murder and killing are distinguishable, and yes, there are times where God does seem to allow and even engage in killing, but you could argue the same for a lot of other bad things we see in the Old Testament. Polygamy, slavery, patriarchy, There are lots of times where that's happening and it seems to be acceptable to God in some ways, but it's not, right? The Bible, and Tim Keller says this, a fairly conservative, non-pacifist person, would say that the Old Testament in particular shows rather than tells why some things are evil. David's a good example of this. David is a man after God's own heart. He's a warrior, but his killing disqualified him from building God's temple. God specifically told him, you cannot build my temple because there is so much blood on your hands. And David's violence is what ultimately ruins his family. There are many, many other examples of this where the Old Testament shows rather than tells that things are wrong. And the prophets are kind of a bridge to the New Testament. They begin to talk about nonviolence as a good thing. How peace, like in Jeremiah 29, 11, to seek the welfare and peace of your captives. That's kind of unusual. That seems like a bridge to Jesus. Um, and that eventually God will turn all swords into plowshares. So that's the Old Testament. And then this view from a New Testament perspective would argue 
um, that including today's passage, the overwhelming position of the New Testament is that Christians cannot be violent. Sure, Jesus said to go and buy a sword and sell your cloak, but he wasn't talking about fighting. Only two guys had a sword, and Jesus said, enough already. You missed the point. It's not about going and getting a sword to fight. You think we're going to go fight the Romans? That's not what he was getting at in that passage. You know, when Jesus says, I've come to bring sword, not peace, he's not saying he came for violence. If he did, he never did any. Right? And when Jesus goes into the temple to cleanse the temple, yes, he brings a whip. But go look at those passages. There's no record that he ever actually hits anybody or anything with it. One, you don't use a whip to actually hit the animals. You just crack it. And that's what causes animals to scatter. And beyond that, Jesus comes back into the temple in every story and talks to the money changers and scolds them. How is he hitting the money changers out of the temple and then coming back and talking to them? What are they like? Do they magically reappear? No, Jesus didn't scatter them the first time. He scattered the animals and then confronted the money changers. It's not an example of violence. Yes, there are plenty of times where centurions are not condemned, but when the prostitute washes Jesus' feet with her perfume, Jesus doesn't bend over and say, hey, sweetie, by the way, um, I don't really approve of your vocation, and so, you know, I appreciate the perfume. No, he, he celebrates her. He celebrates what she did for him. She calls her faith great, just like he does the Roman centurion. The fact that Jesus doesn't have something to say doesn't mean he doesn't actually have something to say. He just didn't say it at that time. There are lots of other examples. Romans 12, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. James 4, wars and fighting are the result of sinful passions and cravings. 1 Peter 2, live a cross-shaped life. Right? Like, yes, Jesus comes back as a conqueror in Revelation, but that's not the example that we're supposed to follow in the way we live. Philippians 2 says that the example we follow is Jesus' first coming. Jesus dying and resurrecting is our model as Christians, not the Jesus who come back and conquers. And that's why Paul says vengeance is for God, not for us. So those are kind of the two big views. Um, I think that Christians can disagree agreeably about this. You know, I don't think this is an issue that you have to leave a church over or anything like that, not in the slightest. Um, and again, I've held both views. For me now, I fall pretty squarely in the Christian nonviolence camp. Um, and I used to be very, very pro-just war. So I've kind of made a transition there. I guess my prayer for you guys, though, is on this question, that you would at least, at a minimum, think of nonviolence as more of a default than maybe you do now that instead of automatically assuming that the violent response is the right one, at least take a minute and think about it. You know, Bonhoeffer is brought up by the first argument as somebody who gave up nonviolence. If you read his stuff, he wrestled. He wrestled over that. And if that's how we behave at the end of the day, I'm cool with that because we need to be doing a lot more wrestling than I think we do on this subject. Um, and then, you know, kind of going to the example of, well, what would you do, Jonathan, if somebody broke into your house? And how, what would you do to protect your family. I mean, I can tell you, for Laura and I, we don't own any weapons, we don't have any guns, and we are committed to never using lethal violence against anybody who shows violence against us. That's just our commitment. Um, and, and there's an important reason for that. Um, so I want you to imagine that I've uh, invited you to my house for dinner. So Ashley, let's say we've had you over because we haven't hung out in a long time. So we need to have you over. And we're having dinner, and we're eating curry or whatever, and all of a sudden, Laura gets up, she walks over to the kitchen, doesn't say a word, grabs the biggest, sharpest knife in our house, turns and looks right at you, eyes big, and just raises this knife. Okay, first of all, this is a ridiculous example because Laura would never do this. But let's just say she snapped, right? Something just, something snaps. Now, 
yeah, Edith's like, Laura would never snap. True. But let's just say, okay, now I'm going to usher my kids out of there. I'm going to protect you. I will wrestle Laura. I will try to disarm her. I will take the knife myself and take the wound, but I would never, ever consider turning that knife back on her and using lethal violence against her, even though she's threatening you and my kids. Why am I saying this? Because the love that we're supposed to have towards our enemies is the love we have towards ourselves. And the closest thing I can come up to with that is my wife, who I love more than anyone else in the world. That's the love I'm supposed to have towards my enemies. How can I say that I love my enemy in that way when I'm prepared to kill them? That's not how I would speak about my wife, so it's not the way I would speak about my enemy. That's the first question. Last two questions are a lot quicker. What to do about governments? This is, goes back to Jamie's question. An international war. This passage doesn't really address that, so it's not really the focus of my sermon today, but I do think we have to wrestle with attention because on the one hand, there are passages like Romans 12 and 1 Peter 2, or excuse me, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, that talk about the fact that government is established by God to restrict evil and to wield the sword to do that, to use violence. Um, and for sure, like, this is one of these situations where you would expect violence to be used to restrain evil in wartime situations. On the other hand, there's no commandment in Scripture that gives Christians the right to be able to participate in that government and wield violence. There's just nothing that says that. And the early testimony of the church was, you can't even be baptized in our faith until you have renounced your ways as a violent Roman soldier. We won't even let you join our church because we take it that seriously. I don't know what to do with that. That's a hard tension. Like, again, my father, Air Force, have mad respect for him and everybody that he served with. I have benefited from the military in so many different ways. We all have. Um, I guess what I want to ask us is to, again, not jump to the natural conclusion, but have a little bit more Christian imagination and ask ourselves, like, not what happens if we don't fight as a, gun, as a government, but what happens when we do, right? We always ask ourselves, like, well, what if we don't go to war? Like, what if we never went to fight the Nazis? That's a pretty important question. I also want to ask us, well, what happens because we did? Okay, so World War I connects to Ukraine today, and it goes to your example, Jamie. World War I was a war that was not a war of principle. It was a war of haphazard treaties where a bunch of people said they'd protect each other, and it turned the world into a powder keg that needed one small spark. Boom, set the world on fire. World War I is what caused World War II. Germany was left in a crippled, vulnerable position that Hitler was easily able to take advantage of and turn that country into one of the worst evils we've ever seen. That war, World War II, led to the devastation of Russia. Well over 10 million Russians died in that war protecting their country and left that nation ripe for abuse at the hands of the Soviet Union and Joseph Stalin, who rose to power as a result of World War II's violence. Led to the Cold War. Cold War was terrible. Eventually it ended when the Berlin Wall fell down and Russia had to abandon, or the Soviet Union had to abandon Germany. Vladimir Putin was there when that happened. He was burning records. He was destroying stuff. He was watching his empire crumble all around him and be humiliated. And he was humiliated. And Ukraine was lost as a result of that. And to this day, that wound drives him to now go back and conquer Ukraine. We can see what happens when we don't go to war, but do we see what happens when we do? Do we see that war begets more violence, more and more and more? You're not going to bring peace through more violence. It doesn't solve the answer, and I don't feel like I have a full answer on what to do, but I'm, I'm trying to wrestle with that tension.
And then lastly, the question is, how do we begin to live this out? How do we actually love our enemies? Um, and I don't honestly know very well, but I want to offer three practical ways to try to do this that come straight from our passages today. To pray for those who persecute you, to bless those who curse you, and to beat your swords into plowshares. So when I say pray for those who persecute you, I'm talking about living in a way where instead of responding to an enemy with bitterness and anger, you do so by praying for them, praying for your enemies. We do this for two reasons. One, because again, it reminds us who the real enemy is. It's not the person that we're mad at. It's the spiritual forces behind them. Prayer helps us realize that. And also, when you start praying for somebody who you consider your enemy, it's a lot harder to be hating towards them, right? You start praying for them. You, maybe it's, it's very brief, like, uh, bless that person, right? It's very, very short. But over time, you're like, oh, I pray that they would have a peaceful day today, Father. I pray that they would treat others with kindness. I pray for their wife, their husband, their spouse, their kids. I pray for their family. I pray for those that are sick in their life. I pray for whatever loss. And you start to begin to build empathy toward that person, and it gets a lot harder to hate them. That's one practical thing that we can do. Having empathy towards others is so important. And one example of this is Brian Stevenson, an attorney with the Equal Justice Initiative, who has dedicated his whole life to representing people on death row, people who've done, in many cases, terrible things. And that's taught him that we are not defined by the worst decision we ever make. And that's built empathy towards his clients, but also the people he opposes in the public sphere, who are angry with him for doing the work that he does. If you ever watch Brian Stevenson speak, he never, ever lowers himself to their level. He always is firmly committed to advocating for his cause, but he does so with grace and truth. And he does that because he's learned how to empathize people who've done bad things and disagree with him over the course of a lifetime. That's our calling too. Second option, bless those who persecute you, or bless those who curse you. This is Jesus' posture, right? He washes Judas's feet. He, he pleads for the forgiveness of the people murdering him on the cross. He is giving blessings to people who are hurting him. If we're honest, that takes a lot of work too. That takes cultivating a character that we're not naturally inclined to have. And I think beyond that, a lot of our influences do not cultivate this culture. If you're finding that your, you know, your media intake is pushing you to be sarcastic, condescending, and really enjoying conflict and comebacks, then maybe you need to take a step back from that stuff. You can't possibly to hope to battle you know, hours and hours and hours of social media and news content and late night talk shows with a little bit of time in the Bible and some time at fellowship group or in the, in the Word on Sundays. It's just not going to work. You have to be honest with yourself and say, if I'm going to be the person who blesses people that curse me, I can't be listening to people who are doing the opposite all day long. And then lastly, beating our swords into plowshares. Now, this can be symbolic. Like, maybe think about the weapons that you use in your life that hurt people. Gossip, slander, sarcasm, lies, physical violence. Maybe you just really get angry at people and, and hit them. I don't know. Cast those things aside. Set them apart. Don't engage in them anymore. Sure, that's one way to think about this. But for others who are wrestling with this passage today and are thinking about it, I want to actually challenge you to get rid of your weapons. I want you to actually consider disarming yourself. This is a practical way to begin to think about what it looks like to love your enemies. There are lots of ways you can do this. You can give your gun or your weapons to a local DPD precinct, and they will take it and they'll just destroy it for you. 
But there's another option too that I want to put forward to you, which is through a nonprofit in Colorado that takes inspiration from Isaiah 2, the idea of beating your swords into plowshares. You can donate your gun to this nonprofit, and there's an Ann Arbor affiliate where they take it and package it and mail it, um, and they will turn that gun into gardening tools. And they make those gardening tools available to people who purchase them, or they'll even give them back to you based on the one that was created from your gun. Again, that's, that's a heavy teaching. That's a hard one. That's one of many options that you could take away from this sermon. But for those of you who are really wrestling with this, I want to challenge you to consider taking that step. No matter how we decide to respond, family, may we listen to the call of Jesus to love our enemies the way that he does with a humble, gracious, feet-washing, enemy-serving love. If we're going to love our enemies like this, family, we won't have a lot of enemies left over. We'll just have neighbors that we can welcome into God's kingdom. Let's pray. Father, um, you've told us not to retaliate violently, to love our enemies, and to be complete. Help us in our weakness, Lord, to know how to do that. Help us to be gracious to one another as we figure this out, Father. As we talked about, may we ache and strain our way towards unity as a church, Lord. Despite our differences, may we learn to live in love together. Um, And may you be at the center of all of that, Father. Amen.